Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 24. We're going to be joining you every week to talk IT career, news, and opinions based on our points of view. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. I want to make sure our listeners know we are a couple of VMware solution engineers looking to bring them the career advice we wish we've been given earlier in our careers. We hope our career discussions will be relevant across disciplines and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. <laughs> Great. How was that opening for you, Nick? It was good. Tried something a little bit different there. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it works out. Yeah, it really came across. I, I didn't notice that you were doing it until the very last second, and then boom, it was on me. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to be a little unpredictable here, John, because it's my turn to ask the questions this week, and so I'm really, really trying to to make you work for it this time. Oh, that's right. So the topic is the continuation of our last week's topic, my three-year check-in at VMware. Last week, we did kind of my thoughts and a summary of, of uh, what I had learned over the past three years. And this week, we were going to do um, your questions to me, um, kind of a, a grill session um, that we're, we keep jokingly calling it that. Yeah. But um, You feel so good? You feel ready? Let's... I feel ready. I, I, I think, you know, we, we prepped, um, I think, uh, we, we had all these, uh, number 23 jokes uh, ready for last week that we didn't use any of. So this week I did a bunch of research into all the famous uh, people who wore number 24 and various jerseys. Oh, nice. So I'm ready. Awesome. Okay, good. Well, that's, that blows away the first few questions I had. We'll just skip those. But see, John, what I had to do was I had to curate and dig through the thousands of listener questions that came in after our last podcast. People wanted to send in questions like, I need to ask John White this question. I want to know about these things. So I'm just going to I'm just gonna go for it. We're just going to dig in. Does that work for you? I mean, if it takes... Absolutely works for me. If it takes three hours, then we're going to do it for the fans. Does that sound good? Three, five, 12, it doesn't matter. I am here. All right, one sitting. Here we go. So, number one, John, what has made you stay with the company for three years now? Ooh, that is a good one. Um, I would say that when I joined VMware, I considered it as a medium to long-term job. Um, I didn't anticipate, you know, maybe leaving ever, <laughs> right? You always want the next job to be like the job that you have for life. Um, it's worked out that way for me so far. I really love the technology that VMware has and, and represents and is, cons you know, continuously innovating in. I really love the space. Um, I think that, you know, in addition to what we were doing, we have kind of moved into the public cloud space with our partnerships with, you know, the major cloud vendors at this point, um, Amazon Web Services and Azure. I'm sure in the future, as other you know major players evolve, that we'll partner with them as well. Um, but you know that's been super exciting. It, it's always changing. Um, it's new products, it's new solutions, it's new issues that my customers have. I, I really enjoy the role, I guess, 
is uh, maybe that second pillar, you know, first love of the technology, you know, second love of the role. Um, I get to help my customers solve their, you know, really important technical problems. Um, that can be technology problems that I can help solve with, with our customer, you know, product portfolio. And sometimes it's just general consultation. Hey, have you seen this type of problem before? Absolutely. I have, you know, I've dealt with it. You know, my other customers have dealt with it. Here's kind of the three different ways that I've seen that problem solved. And, uh, you know, let me know what else, you know, I can do. Do you need me to put you in touch with somebody, you know, else at a different company who can talk to you about how they solve that problem? You know, that type of thing. So to be able to, to be that person to a number of my customers is, is really gratifying. Um, the constant change, you know, it's, I talked about change in the product portfolio, but it's just the different types of problems that people run into and, and maybe the different, you know, uh, um, pillars of types of problems. So I've seen technical problems, but I've, I've seen political problems as well. You know, I've had customers ask me, hey, so, you know, we're having problems like funding things. And uh, can you give me some advice on on different, you know, strategies and tactics that, that you've used before in that space of getting IT projects funded? And and to be asked that problem, you know, asked for that consultation is is really gratifying, right? Because they're they're being vulnerable with me and and I have to you know, be straight with them and, and, and talk to them in a way that isn't necessarily purely benefiting me. Right. So that's a level of trust, you know, achieving that, that that's been really gratifying. And then just, you know, basic pattern recognition. I think I've talked about this before when I was on public forums and the Spiceworks forums, mostly to see different kinds of problems and, you know, different situations you know, just building up that pattern recognition muscle like that. It's just, you know, super interesting. But again, pattern recognition plus constant change, right? So you can't get trapped into um, just seeing the patterns that you're used to seeing. You have to get um, always question, you know, whether you're jumping to conclusions and, and, and prejudging the situation. Um, so, you know, that, again, like kind of uh, the, the way that I think about that you know, that's been, it's just been really enjoyable. Um, so that, that's been an enjoyable part of three years. I would say also just increasing, like maybe the third pillar, um, increasing my general skill level at all of those things. I, I, I like that process of continual improvement of myself and I'm constantly thinking about, you know, what it is, what can I be doing to, make myself better at this job? You know, what are the different skill areas in it? And what are the things that I could be um, better at? And, and how do I go about getting better at those things? You know, and in our, our role, it's, there's a whole lot of self-study and, you know, spinning up by ourselves. And uh, I think that, um, I think working with other people on those things, that's, that's been really enjoyable too, you know, to to kind of collaborate and, um, think of myself as like, like the lone gunman out there. Hmm. Maybe that's not the right analogy. Just kind of to think of myself as the lone, lone ranger, I think is what I was thinking of myself as. Oh right? man. And then to, to, to realize that, that I'm actually on a team, right. And to be able to leverage all of those people 
and collaborate that that's been really helpful too. See, I was thinking of you as more of a master Yoda kind of figure here, you know, since starting the John White school of mentoring, at least that's, that's what I pictured, but Hey, your, your description was pretty good. It, it sounds like John, that some of the time you've had your head in the cloud to, to study up on these other technologies. But one of the things I heard ring true most of all is that you really are trying your best to do the right thing for the customer, even if you're steering them in a direction that makes them not buy something, which I love that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, you, you have to, you absolutely have to do right by the customer always. And you know, it's your job, at least in my role, it's, I feel like it's my job to maintain the long term, um, best relationship with a customer that I can, especially if it's, you know, steering them away from, a purchase that they, you know, even of our products, you know, that they don't need to make. Right. But, and I always say this, right. Like, please remember this day that I told you not to spend $20,000 with us because one day I'm going to come and say, you actually need to spend $80,000 with us. And, you know, you need, you need to remember like both of, you know, I'll, I'll tell you when I think that you you're spending too much or you don't need to spend anything, but I'll tell you when I think you need to spend more. And, um, you can't have credibility in that latter situation if you have never said the first one. Right. Yeah. Because not everybody expects you to say that when you're part of a sales organization. So that's good. That's very true. I like that. Very, very true. You, You said something about, you know, me being, like that's master Yoda, but like everybody is in that situation, right? They have more expertise than somebody and they're, you know, hopefully trying to pass that expertise on, but they also have less expertise than somebody else. And they're trying to gain that expertise. So you have to, you always have to like look up to people and realize that they are working on themselves too. Right. Absolutely. I'm I'm only a relative Yoda. (laughs) Relative. I love (laughs) it. Not an absolute Yoda. I see. I see. Okay. (laughs) That's good. Let me ask this, John, you know, it's been three years looking back on it. I I know that you had mentioned in a previous episode that you, once you join a company, you try to think about where do I want to be three, five years down the road with this organization? Are you where you thought you might be after three years? And are there any goals that maybe you set at the beginning that you, you achieved, surpassed, or have yet to achieve? I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I would say, so here's kind of my journey into VMware. The, the last two jobs, I think I've mentioned before, I think I applied for jobs like over and over again, like five, six, seven times. I, I don't even remember how many. Um, but I think the last two were kind of back to back. And one was a tech marketing role with uh, storage and availability, and then this SE role, right? So I never even got a call back on the tech marketing job. And in the process of interviewing for this SE role, the people who were interviewing me kept on asking me whether this was really what I wanted to do or was tech marketing what I wanted to do. And I was like, I'd almost forgotten that I had applied for that tech marketing job. It was like maybe 60 or 90 days out, you know, and I just not heard anything back, maybe more than that. And then I realized, oh, they must have seen like this record of me applying for this job. And 
one of the fears or risks I think they felt that they had was like, oh, no, this is somebody who actually wants to be in tech marketing who who's just applying to an SE job. And like I had to dissuade them of that. Like that was one of the things I actually had to sell them on. And the reason that I think I was able to do that and be very honest about that was I think that my career progression and what I saw myself doing wasn't necessarily tied to a specific title or a specific role. You know, part of what I wanted to do and what was maybe attracting me to that tech marketing role was that I was, you know, doing some of that in my previous role, um, internalizing my knowledge of products and then going out and trying to evangelize it in a one-to-many group setting, right? But, you know, that wasn't the entirety of what I saw myself doing in my career. So, you know, helping customers to realize value out of products, every, you know, helping customers to, you know, organizations to, to understand the value of, of the, the, the product portfolio that, that VMware had was definitely a different part of that. And so for me, you know, I was able to kind of deconstruct what I saw from myself and what I wanted. I wanted to be better at this. I wanted to add this to my skill set. I wanted to you know, mentoring was actually one of the things that I wanted, right? I wanted to be mentored and to mentor other people. And so all of those things, you know, I think I, I would, I've been able to achieve, I've been able to be more, um, active in, in social media. Um, I've been able to go to VMUGs and, and help support them. I've been able to podcast, I, you know, added that to a list of activities that I've done. Um, and helped in that core SE role. And, and I've been able to just deconstruct all those things. Now I've gotten promoted in different titles and, and things like that, but that wasn't, I don't think that that was something that was like a strict part of my day one goal, right? It wasn't like in three years, I want this title, you know, and some people have, you know, are able to do that. Um, that's, you know, for me, I prefer to, again, deconstruct things a little bit, right? So maybe if, if even if my goal is to have that title, what are the things that one needs to be able to do to have that title? And I'll focus on those things because those are things that I can control. I can be more active this way. I can do this. I can, you know, go above and beyond in these areas. I can't control whether somebody goes, okay, I see that you're doing those things and I'm going to give you that title, right? Like a, like a green check mark. So I can control what I can control. And then leave that to somebody else. Now, you know, over time, you know, you feel like, you know, are you being recognized or, or something like that? That's not a problem that I've ever had. You know, I feel like I've gotten the validation from the people that I've worked with and, you know, my management, uh, structure and, and I've been happy with that. Right. So, um, so that's a, a pretty long winded answer, but hopefully that's a way of looking inside how my brain works and how I think about it. And, and hopefully other people can take what they can from that, um, and, uh, and apply it to situations that they're in. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. In fact, John, it, a lot of times you have a book recommendation for people. So my book recommendation is Chasing Excellence by Ben Bergeron. I know I mentioned that on the podcast before, but it was kind of like you were reading a chapter out of that book. He he talks about how to build the world world's fittest athletes, but he does that by focusing on the things that they can control. And in their case, you know, it was how hard they train, the sleep, recovery, nutrition, 
you know, it wasn't, they actually can't necessarily control whether they win or lose, but they can be as prepared as possible for any situation. And it sounds like you're saying, if I focus on the steps I know are needed to get there, the outcome will eventually happen. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. I think we talked about that a little bit um, when I mentioned uh, process-oriented thinking as opposed to outcome-oriented thinking. And um, that had to do with like um, some weird uh, online poker background that I had from like 10 or 15 years ago and some books that I read in that area. So maybe we'll put a link back to that. But I, I, I think it's, you know, two sides of the same coin, right? It's like figure out the process do the things that you can control. And then there's a certain number of things that are just left a chance, right? What if, what if, you know, my goal is, oh, I want, you know, a promotion to this title and the company that I'm working for has no budget to promote people for that title. Um, so if I did all the things that I felt like I needed to do and progressed and am, am recognized by all my peers and maybe, you know, people at large in the community at large, but I don't get that promotion to that title. Does that mean I've failed? I guess if the only measure for success is promotion to that title, but if I've done everything that I can, you know, un under my control and I've, you know, progressed my career and other people are asking, well, geez, how can we get somebody like John White into our organization? You know, he seems to be not only promoting his own excellence, but he's affecting all these other people you know, maybe he can have this like amazing positive impact in our organization. I mean, then that's success, right? Um, I, I just don't think that, you know, setting specific outcomes is the, uh, is the way to go in terms of goal setting. So I think I, I set my, my goals were to do certain things and to control all the things that I could. And I feel like I've been pretty successful. I haven't been perfect you know, not by a long shot. And there's things that I'm, you know, constantly working on improving, but, um, I I've been iterating, right. I've been, been getting better at them and, and progress, you know, is, is always better than, you know, I, I haven't let like lack of perfection get in the way of progressing. I feel like there's a saying in there somewhere, <laughs> but I don't know what it it's is. It's all about the iterations, John, as we, as we well know. I don't know if you're on John White 5.0, 6.0 by now, but it sounds like it's going pretty well. And I, I hope that our listeners will remember that the way you define success can really affect your attitude and, and a lot of other things. Because as you said, it's not just the achieving the outcome or the title. The success is, is part of the journey and achieving those steps you know that need to be taken to get there. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I feel like, you know, if people are trying to apply this in their own lives, you know, and they, they set goals and the goal, you know, hopefully is to be, to be better. And, and maybe if it's a career goal, then it's to be recognized and compensated for being better. Um, and, and if you leave it general like that and then start breaking down, you know, all the things that you can do to, to be better, um, maybe that success doesn't come from the organization that you're in, you know, the recognition, and maybe they just are incapable of doing it. You know, I, I worked for a company, you know, two jobs ago that had nowhere for me to go, 
you know, I was already running IT for the entire organization. I was already reporting directly to the general manager. Like literally the only move that I could have made was, I guess, like more money or more pay. But, you know, I, I had to go to a bigger organization if I was going to maintain, you know, have a career in IT operations. So, you know, sometimes that's just the only move that you can make. And sometimes, you know, you know, this, this wasn't me, but maybe you're working for an organization, um, you the listener, not Nick, um, that, that just doesn't respect you, that doesn't, you know, value you and has like, you know, subtly or not so subtly told you that. Well, so then, you know, maybe your goal should be to get a better job, to work for a better organization, to, to be in a, in a better situation for you in your life. And, and, you know, it's a hot job market out there in uh, 2019. February 2nd is when we're recording this. So, um, you know, excellence is always, uh, always in demand. So I think I had a, a, a professor who, um, was my advisor in college. He's like, if you're excellent at something, it'll always be in demand, right? You'll always have a job to be really, really good at something. Um, just try to, to control that and, and you, and then, you know, maybe there's a process of self-promotion too, right? There's positive and constructive ways to be self-promoting, you know, through blogs, through podcasts, through, you know, whatever, um, social media. So have at it. I like it. Yeah. And if you do see your shadow, like a groundhog may, don't run back in the hole, keep going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let me shift the focus a little bit, John. Do you have a favorite memory from your time with VMware specifically that you'd like to share with the listeners? <laughs> that, that's a funny question. Um, I think I'm going to fall back on a story that maybe I've told before. Um, and it's about uh, being nerd famous. Not me being nerd famous, but nerd fame, right? So, you know, this was uh, one or two years ago out of at VMworld um, US. And it was um, two, you know, observations of, of people at VMware. And the first one was the CEO, Pat Gelsinger, right? So he was on the main stage, you know, giving keynotes, like, you know, guiding people through, you know, 25,000 eyeballs on him, right? Well, that's not when I saw him, right? I'm like, of course I saw him there, but, but I saw him outside the hands-on labs where I happened to be. I think I was a proctoring that year. And he was just walking down the hallway. He had a backpack over one shoulder, suit on, and he's walking down. I didn't see any security with him. I didn't see an executive assistant. He was just hoofing it on his way to a meeting. Nobody, nobody stopping him, right? He's just walking. And then a little bit later, I saw, I think it was Wade Holmes, who is uh, in tech marketing for the network and security business unit. And I think he had just ended a session. He had walked out. He could not walk five feet. He was, he just was mobbed by people like wanting to ask him, you know, add on questions about everything. So I was like, this is a weird business we're in where the CEO can just walk down the hallway without being bothered. But this guy in tech marketing can't <laughs> and bothered is probably not the right word to use, but you know, anyway, that was a, that was a funny story. And then I would, you know, I'll, I'll throw this, you know, bonus one. in. it was the first time that I gave somebody a tour of the, um, the Emory campus in Palo Alto, you know, and it's mind blowing, right? It's, it's, it's gorgeous. It's 105 acres in the hills, um, above Palo Alto and the, I want to say it's called the Stanford uh, research park or something like that. 
um, and VMware, I think at the time, you know, got the, the campus, um, despite the fact that Facebook and Google wanted it, you know, just because we were, you know, one of the incumbent tenants and, uh, maybe Roche was on it and, and decided to leave and, you know, Stanford said, well, who wants it? And we said, well, we definitely do. And, um, so it's, it's just amazing to, to give people the tour, you know, to walk around, to, to point to the various buildings and, you know, see the grounds and, and the, the atmosphere that people do work in at VMware. Pretty amazing. Very nice. Now you, you talked about this a few minutes ago, but I want to dig into it a little bit further. You know, three years, some people may consider that a long time being with a vendor. Would you say that that's made you less relevant to customers just because you're no longer a customer, more relevant, or are you so cool that you haven't lost a step? And how do you continue to stay relevant while working for a vendor? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, relevance. Yeah. So I think I'm relevant in a different way than I was relevant when I was a customer or closer to being a customer. Um, so I think it's all about how I measure my relevance. So if I measure my relevance and my ability to off the top of my head, come up with like a CLI, like command line flag for a specific, uh, use case, or yeah, I know this API backwards and forwards. Let me tell you and, and how it works. Like, I think I've, you know, I'm not relevant that way in the same way that I used to be. Um, but that's not how I measure my relevance to my customers. Like I measure my relevance to my customers by my ability to help them like overall in the long term solve their, their business problems using our technology portfolio. And in that way I've only gotten better. Right. I've, I've only gotten more relevant. So I think my ability to like, again, be relevant on the command line has, has gone down, but my overall relevance to my customers has gone up just because of long-term relationship, you know, building trust, my ability to spin up quickly on different parts of our portfolio as the portfolio increases and answer questions about business value, you know, technology's application in business value. Like that's, that's way more important. Like I'll give you like a random example. Like it's like installing Linux, right? Um, the last time I did like a bare metal installation of Linux operating system into a VM, it was, I don't even remember. I, I couldn't tell you, right? The, the last time that I, I needed like a Linux um, in a VM, I just grabbed an image that somebody else had done, right? And that that's how I do it, right? So um, my ability to coach somebody through bare metal Linux VM installation is at an all-time low, but that's maybe not that important because who does that? <laughs> you know, it's like a very specific subset of people need that knowledge and when that that information comes up i know who to call to coach them through that right we have very technical specialists who can help do that so you know my relevance like i, I can't be a technical pure technical expert at, at all aspects of our technology it's just impossible you know so it's like who do i know how quickly can i get answers i don't know if that makes sense but that's how I think about it. Yeah, that's good. It's not always about solving the problem right then, but knowing what resources you can go to to help solve the problem. Yeah, 
work smarter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. Okay. Now, do you ever miss the customer side of the fence, John? Would you, would you go back? Oh yeah. That's interesting too. Um, what I miss is maybe having direct, like 100% input and control over technology, um, solution, you know, decisions. Like I'm going to, here's the three ingredients that I'm going to mix together to come up with this solution and, and making those decisions. Um, so I don't know at what level you would have to be to really have that. Like that's a very specific thing, right? Coming from a small business, I was able to make those decisions and say, Hey, this is what we need to do. This is what I need budget for. Um, any type of medium sized business, you're automatically in a decision-making process that you don't have 100% control of. And the person who has 100% control and who can justify budget for things isn't actually working on day-to-day problems, right? So you have like somebody who's a director or VP who has a specific budget and bit specific sign-off control below certain numbers. If that person is like elbows deep in the technology, like individual technology solution, like they're, that's probably a mistake is being made. Right, they're probably too focused on one thing instead of being focused on a portfo- the portfolio that they control. So, um, yeah, I think that the things that I miss, I don't think that I'd be able to do. Right, like that doesn't really exist. And and the things that I, I like, I've been able to find ways to like scratch that itch. I can be an influencer at a bunch of different levels at a bunch of different organizations. So, you know, I really like that. I like the process of gaining trust. Of, of building up that reputation within the organization and then coming back in a very focused manner when there's a very specific problem and, and saying, okay, here's how we're going to uh, solve it. Um, and here's what we need to do to help you get that done inside your organization to help um, mold a vision too. Right. That's, that's maybe a different way is like, Hey, you know, we're thinking about getting into this, like what, we don't know anything about it. What, what do we need to do? You know, do we talk to Gartner or some other, um, you know, group out there and say, you know, who are, who are the, the leading people in the market? Like what, how do we create a vision and to help them create a vision for their technology, technological future? I mean, that's super powerful. And you can do that in, a, like I said, a bunch of different organizations. And, and there really is no, job that I think that I could go into where I'm really going to have that 100% control, right? The CIO at a large company doesn't have 100% control over individual technology decisions. Like they shouldn't anyway, right? They should be watching over portfolio, watching over teams and personalities and, you know, multiple VPs that report to them who have multiple directors reporting to them that have multiple managers who have multiple individual contributors. Like that's, four or five <laughs> sure. um, layers away, right? So, Well, yeah, and, and it depends on how micromanagerial the CIO is, as well as sometimes you'll find in the smaller shops, at least in my experience, that a CIO, CTO could be super technical and in charge of making exactly those decisions. I think in your larger organizations, you're, you're spot on there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we, we talked about some of the things that are perks of working for a vendor, some things you like. 
Is there anything you would identify as maybe the least glamorous part of working for a technology vendor, John? So I would say, um, you know, as a solution engineer, we're part of the sales organization. So always, you know, sitting in on sales meetings is like the least glamorous part. It's also a really important part, but it's not a glamorous part. It's, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of sales process and sales process management and, and inspection of what's going on. So I would say like that is not glamorous. Um, it's not necessarily a hundred percent enjoyable, um, but it is, you know, not, <laughs> not every part of dinner is dessert. <laughs> well, you eat dessert so, first, right? So you have room for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> now we said in a different episode, we'll have to dig that one up that some knowledge of the sales process is is important to people in any role would you still agree with that yeah i would say at least in this solution engineering role you know pre-sales technical engineering knowing what the sales process looks like is super important and and most companies use some variation on a process that ibm came up with in the 70s and 80s and i actually had a um, colleague at a previous position who kind of clued me into that. And he kind of told me, you know, the an apocryphal story that, that everybody at IBM in that organization, like down to the executive assistants and the secretaries needed to know the entire sales process and what different sales stages meant and, and the significance of them. So when, you know, a vice president's like executive assistant took a, took a phone call and said, Hey, I need, you know, the VP on the line for, for this deal, it's in, it's in stage, you know, six and, uh, it's pretty important. It's at this scale like that person knew exactly what a stage six deal meant. Right. So, um, that's, I'll, I think we'll, we'll post a link. I'll, I'll look around for what that IBM sales process model is, you know, I'm sure, like I said, that, that almost every company out there uses some variation of it. I think, even Salesforce and their default setup uses a variation of that. So, um, is it super important to know, like before you join an organization, maybe the general outline of, of what those different stages look like and, and what they might mean, but every co company uses like a different version of that. And, you know, how do you get from stage one to stage two? How do you get from stage two to stage three? You know, um, the nuts and bolts of that are, are unique to every single organization. So, you know, you just need to know their variation on it. But if you know the, the overall process, like, you know, learning their specifics is, uh, is I think a little bit easier. I don't know, does that match your, um, experience of coming in? Cause I think you came in maybe without exposure to that, like, um, sales process stage. So, um, learning that maybe was a little bit different for you. Yeah, that was definitely different for me. I didn't, I hadn't been exposed to that before, you know, at what, at what point do we change the opportunity to the next stage and what do we look for and, and how does it work from, from talking about it at the beginning? Yes, we're interested to, yes, we're going to buy this technology. I, mm -hmm. I didn't really know anything about it, even in the role 
that I had where I was doing some pre-sales consultations. That wasn't really part of the the knowledge I needed to have. It was mostly just the technical side and not that much on the sales process side. So yeah, it's it's been really good to to help understand that. And honestly, sometimes the customer has to understand how how long it takes to get from idea to purchase to implementation so that they can meet their own deadlines. Yeah. And I think that it's probably only important to companies that are managing complex sales cycles of complex products and, um, you know, at a large scale where they need introspection into that sales process from a high level. So if you go to Best Buy, um, probably there's not like a, you know, complex sales process to sell somebody an Xbox, right? So it's like somebody came in and they bought it at the end, <laughs> right? So, you know, they, they manage sales in a slightly different way at that level, you know, than, you know, somebody like VMware uh, or, you know, again, back in the day at, at IBM where they had, you know, complex products that needed configuration that needed validation. Is this actually the right, you know, product for this customer? Is it going to meet their needs? Are they going to be happy with it? Are they going to realize value from it at the price that we can sell it to them where it makes sense? Right. But these are questions that the solution engineer is helping to answer. Right? Oh yeah, you do have that problem. This can um, help you solve it, but we sell it for at a price where the value that it's going to bring to you, is not going to pay off for seven years. So that's not the, that's not a economical solution for you. Right. It's not that rare. It's not that, it's not that common for us to actually have that, that issue, right. Our solutions pay off pretty quickly, but, um, you know, you, you have to recognize that and you have to help them, like the customers understand like where that value is coming from, whether it's dollars or, or time or capabilities, um, you know, lowering of, of risk, uh, increasing quality service. Like these, you know, value comes from a lot of different places. So helping them understand that value is sometimes it's, it's, it's not immediately obvious, right? You're not going to spend $40,000 on this thing and then, you know, save $40,000, you know, in direct budget savings in six months. Maybe that's not going to happen, you know, but maybe you're going to get things back in a different way. Right. The ROI may take some time. There's another, uh, buzz term for you, but as part of that sales process, you and others who are in field facing roles are going to have to go and visit the customer. And oftentimes you're traveling by car, sometimes by plane, sometimes by both. So I'm curious about how the amount of travel has been for you since you started. Has that changed at all? And do you have any tips for people who have a role that requires them to do some traveling? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that ultimately, um, that's going to be dependent on the role and, and, you know, even all the people that have the same title in the same region that I live travel different amounts because they have different customers, right? So if they have a customer who has, you know, you know, five customers and they all have, um, maybe a, a headquarters in the Bay area, but they have, you know, technical headquarters in St. Louis and a different like business unit headquarters in Seattle and a different business unit headquarters in, in Atlanta, 
well, they're going to be doing a lot more traveling than me if, if I don't have those things. So I don't have that many customers that are that dispersed. So I've been flying, you know, maybe once a quarter. Um, but everything else is like, you know, three days out of five, I'm probably driving somewhere. So there's a couple different things that, you know, I have as keys to success in, in traveling. And the first is, uh, packing lists. Like this is for me, it's critical. Like, you know, the getting somewhere and realizing that you've forgotten something important is, is a big bummer, right? So, um, having a packing list for, for everything, even for like a customer visit that's, you know, locally for 15, 15 minute drive away, you know, I still have a list for that. Um, you know, going packing out to go visit, you know, fly somewhere for a week. I have a, a different packing list for that. So, um, I think packing lists are <laughs> just critically important, you know, local packing lists. I, st I still take like a battery, um, to charge my phone, to, to charge my, uh, to charge my laptop, you know, those, you know, um, maybe a plug for, for the laptop, but you know, those kinds of things, uh, man, you know, business cards, you know, it's like, if you have a list and you can just look at the list and say, yeah, I have all of these things and then walk out the door feeling very certain of that. Like you never have any stress that you forgot something. Um, same thing to go on a flight. Yes. I have my passport. Yes. I have, you know, my, my hotel reservations. Um, you know, on my phone. Yes, I have, I know everywhere that I'm going. Yes, I have my, you know, my car reservation, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, all of those things like, you know, critically important. It just de-stresses everything. If you're flying a lot, I would recommend, um, I, I, I don't know before I move on to flying, does, does that make sense of the packing list? It absolutely does. And one thing I thought of, John, is I would love to see the differences in those packing lists, depending on where you're going. And I'm sure that the listeners would too. So I smell a blog in the works for you. I think that would be a cool one to share <laughs> with the with the community. I'm just going to toss that out, you as, out there as an idea. That's awesome. Like I remember definitely telling you that you should blog about something and maybe feel like I was assigning homework and, and now I'm on the other end of that. It's, it's exactly what it feels like. Yeah. And, <laughs> and if you're listening to this and you want John to blog about it, just send that tweet out to add nerd journey and we'll see what the demand is because I feel like a lot of people could get some value out of this, John. Now we're going to peer pressure you to yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah. All your students yeah, are counting absolutely. on you. <laughs> all my, all my peers. I'll call you all my peers. Um, yeah. Flying, I would say, um, or, you know, traveling out of town in general, so like a little bit different. Um, some very specific, like targeted things. Like I would, if you're flying with any regularity, I would say, you know, more than twice a year, I would sign up for, um, the customs and border patrol program called global entry. I think it's like $85 every five years or something like that. Um, it's, it's a superset of the TSA pre-check uh, program. So with global entry, you do get a uh, pre-check as a, as a side effect. Uh, the main program is focused on bypassing customs checkpoints. Um, so you get a background check and you get enrolled in TSA pre-check as well. So, um, you know, all the benefits of TSA pre-check because you get that, but also if you have ever travel internationally, you can bypass, uh, uh, customs and border patrol, um, just by filling out a, a, a yes, you know, 
no, I'm not bringing anything in over the limits. And here's all my declarations. If I have anything to declare that are below the limits and, you know, drop it in a box and just go. Right. So I think I was traveling back from Toronto last year and it saved me probably 90 minutes at the airport by bypassing customs lines. So if you can do that, you know, two or three times in five years, like it'll pay for itself just in hassle at the border. Um, plus all the benefits of the TSA pre-check lines, um, which is, uh, that's the Transportation Safety Authority. Isn't that what TSA stands for? But they, you know, they have people who have known traveler numbers or pass ID numbers um, who have already had their backgrounds checked. You don't have to take your shoes off. You don't have to take your laptop out of your backpack or bag. Um, and uh, so it, you know, makes going through security at airports just a lot more comfortable. Um, frequent traveler programs. I think that's another thing to investigate. I would say, you know, pick an airline and kind of focus on it. You know, um, sometimes you'll pay 30 or $40 more to travel, but, uh, the benefits of being a frequent traveler can pay off. Um, mostly I would say at that kind of like 50,000 mile a year or more level, if you can get 50,000 miles on a single airline and, and not like through their credit card. I mean, 50,000 like, uh, qualifying traveled miles, right? So different airlines have different programs, but I, I fly United in general. Generally that means like the minimum number of miles I'm going to earn on any trip is going to be 500. You know, if you have a, if you take United for a hundred mile hop, they still give you 500 miles and then anything above 500, it's the actual miles flown. Um, if you're, like I said, if you're flying 50,000 miles or more, like you can, check in earlier, uh, get an assigned seat earlier, even at the 25,000 mile level, you can, um, at least in United, you can get the, uh, economy plus seats, um, for no extra charge if, as long as they're available. It's a little bit extra leg room, um, opt in and get those like, uh, exit row seats again, no extra charge. So, you know, you just have to, understand whether like that's a value to you, your comfort is a value to you. So for different people, you might have different goals. So, you know, um, airlines like Southwest, they don't have any differentiation with the class of service. It's just like maybe earlier, earlier boarding. So that might be a value to you. And then I think again, airlines like Southwest can be like, oh, if you're a frequent flyer, then you can get uh free companion tickets. So if you want to take you know, companion on flights. And that's super important to you, more important than, you know, maybe upgrades to economy plus or business class or first class or, um, free access to like lounges, you know, freaking flyer lounges, then, then I would go that way. Um, yeah. So that's just an individual thing. I, I think I mentioned before I use this the, the dongle from, uh, automatic.com to track my local driving. And then, uh, I, capture all my expense receipts in camera. You know, if you have a system for filing that away, so you can, you don't have to carry around those pieces of paper. Like I found like that's way better than, uh, trying to keep pieces of paper around. Maybe it's easy for other people. I always lose them and it's a real pain to have to file for expenses that need receipts when you don't have a receipt. So, and hopefully when you say you lose receipts, you mean that you recycle them, right, John? I mean, Please tell me that's what you mean. Well, I think I just mean that like I've thrown them away if I'm trying to carry around the piece of paper. Um, the chance that I've, th I, I've thrown it away or lost it, you know, oh, I put it in 
I left it in the car that I rented, you know, that kind of thing. Ah, um, makes sense. I got you. Yeah. Or at the hotel room that I've, I've just left. What's the farthest you've ever had to travel for a customer meeting? Mm, I think San Francisco to Atlanta. I don't think I've been to the East Coast. Um, yeah, I think I've been to, like in my previous gigs, I've been to Orlando and uh, Baltimore um, out of Southern California. That was probably the longest flight I've had to take. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I ever crested that like 50,000 mile mark. So I'm not sure that I got a ton of value. The value that I got was getting those economy plus seats. Um, you know, if there were any available 24 hours ahead of the flight, I could just grab them and say, you know, that's my seat now and, uh, no additional charge. So always a good thing. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. Let me, let me steer the conversation yet another direction here. I've heard you say that this is your dream job. So with that being said, how does John White determine what the next role should be and what might make a logical next step from here? So I, I have some theories and if you don't mind, I'd like to share them with you before you answer. Is that cool? Yeah, sure. So my thoughts were maybe you go for principal SE. That's the highest title you can get at VMware. Or maybe an SE at another company. Maybe you go into management of some sort, like SE manager. Maybe you become a technical trainer. Maybe technical marketing. Maybe you go back to the customer side, although after what you said earlier, that's probably not likely. Maybe you become a career coach slash owner of the John White School of Mentoring full-time because that's <laughs> your area of destiny. That's just me thinking out loud. Maybe you become an IT recruiter. I think it could be any one of those. I'm curious to know what you think. Oh, man. That's, that's a lot of good choices there. Um, so some context. I think um, for you know new listeners, I think I said in the past um, – the first day at VMware as an SE, I realized, oh, my dream has been to be an SE at VMware for the last five years, so now I need to figure out a new dream, right? Um, so I think what I, there's probably a lot of overlap with what I said about, you know, the three-year plan, th the three-year goal. Um, I think my next goal, I can't and necessarily, you know, Maybe I shouldn't define it by a specific title and a specific role. I think what I need to do is deconstruct deconstruct the things that I enjoy doing and work on being better at those. And then maybe some, you know, roles will pre present themselves as, you know, more or less valid um, by doing those things. So the things that I've been really enjoying doing have been uh, mentoring other, other SEs. Um, you know, kind of figuring out the best practices, the the common things that that work really well across, um, you know, barriers of, uh, you know, what segment that we're in, what um, specialty or core that we're doing. So that that practice of being an SE, you know, getting better at that, and then helping other people to be better at that. Um, you know, really enjoying that. Um, 
I think, you know, again, collaboration with my peers has been just awesome and terrific. And I'd like to continue doing that. Um, you know, I think, you know, a little bit more one to many types of engagements would be nice. Maybe where I'm not just talking to my customers, but to a larger group of customers. Um, so that, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to, to get involved in that. Maybe that's, you know, speaking at VMUGs, maybe it's, um, you know, figuring out a way to do a VMware presentation um, um, or, or some other technical conference, right? So I'll, I, I think I'm kind of thinking, again, in that same way, that deconstruction and, and then figuring out what roles, like, you know, naturally emerge from that. The principal SE role, I think that, you know, I don't know that if, if we've like specifically explained that um, at, at VMware, and I think this is kind of descended from uh, EMC, when EMC like uh, purchased VMware, they had a principal program. And the technical career path for SEs, you know, includes like either going into management or being like a better and better version of an SE. And, you know, the, the theory in any rate is that you kind of have like a similar uh, pay scale um, to being in management if you are impacting a similar number of customers as a manager, right? And then the same, if your impact radius is, you know, such that you are impacting the same number of people as customers as a director, then maybe you should be on that same, you know, similar um, pay scale as a director and have a title like that. So that's what that the principal program is. And so I think we have a, um, we have uh, right now, like you can come in as a regular SE, then you can be a senior SE, then there's a staff SE, which is the title I have now, and then senior staff, and then principal. And, you know, that senior staff and principal, like there's a review board, like you need to get a bunch of endorsements you know, from people outside of the SE organization. So that, that might be something to shoot for. But again, that I have to say that like, uh, you know, I can't judge my success and failure within the organization by whether I get that title. I have to, you know, figure out the things that I enjoy, you know, spend my time on those. And then if I'm recognized for it, then that would be a nice side effect. Right. So, um, technical marketing. Yeah. Maybe that's another career path, uh, you know, standing up in front of large groups of people, but, you know, it also involves a lot of like, um, behind the scenes stuff, like, you know, really learning deep technical knowledge of, of a specific product, writing white papers, um, you know, running your own, um, internal labs and, and having, you know, uh, uh, just an, a relationship with a product management. Um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of, bunch of things that, that doesn't involve, you know, giving presentations to, you know, 400 people in a room. So, um, yeah, I don't know, not sure, but, you know, I think the things that you've talked about, like, you know, I could probably do in a bunch of different roles, right. Um, whether that's managing a group of SEs, um, that, you know, uh, you know, then there's a lot of mentoring there, right. Um, principal, there's probably still a lot of mentoring there technical marketing, yeah, probably a lot of, you know, one to many, and then, you know, deep technical knowledge. So it's really being open to all those things and, and, you know, figuring out what I have time to work on and then seeing what presents itself. 
So that's a really long-winded way of saying I'm not sure, <laughs> um, but uh, but there it is. Now, are do you feel pretty good about the technical generalist role that you're in now? Would you ever consider really specializing? I know the technical marketing job would make you really dig in and specialize probably in a particular product area, but we also have specialist SE roles as well. Is that something you've ever thought about? Yeah, I've, I think I've I've kept my mind open to doing that. Um, I would say right now it's a little bit difficult to get spun up on all the technologies that we need to know at the levels that we need to know as a core SE and also start to spin up on knowledge um, of a specific business unit and um, and get to that level to like maybe make the jump to specialist. Um, yeah, and I don't know that, I think there's a bunch of things that need to go into that, right? Which is knowing the territory, knowing the customers, you know, knowing the demand for that specialist role. Um, and then, you know, uh, you know, if that was a specific goal of mine, you know, probably I'd need to be open to the idea of like becoming a specialist and in a specific business unit and then being open to moving to where that next role is actually available, right? Because I can't go, well, I, I know the two people who are doing the job in the Bay Area, <laughs> you know, for whatever business unit it is. So either I'm waiting for them to hire a third and applying for that, or I'm waiting for one of those other people to get promoted up or, or leave the organization. You know, you could be waiting forever. So, or, you know, maybe going to work for one of the smaller business units that's that's um, spinning up and and needs people to cover you know entire sections of the of the company right um yeah so i mean all those things are possibilities i i don't think that i've mentally committed to any of those things i think um i've just kind of left it open and you know looked around to you know do i have like a strong singular passion for any individual technology that we have i've been more and less excited about different products we have. Um, I've been pretty excited about everything we have, you know, as far as like customers are concerned and solving their problems. But like for me personally to invest, you know, go, okay, the next seven years of my career, I want to be involved in this specific technology. I don't know that I've necessarily found that yet. Oh, I see. So I think what I heard you say is you're waiting for blockchain to really take off. I get it. Totally understand. Yeah. Blockchain. VMware blockchain SE. Mm -hmm. That's 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 kind of uh, kind of the dream job. Yeah, later next year, that's, you watch. He'll be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a fun one for you, John. I know you're also the co-host of the VMware Roundtable Community Podcast. When did you start doing that, and and how did that happen? I mean, how did you get to be nerd famous enough to be the co-host of that podcast? <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that that's an interesting story too. I think it's been almost 2 years now. I should probably know the specific date that I that I started doing that, but I don't. Um I think this is all about again being open to things, right? So different people have different styles of doing that. Um one of the things I noticed was that VMware hosted a bunch of different meetups. So things like blockchain meetups and container meetups and uh open stack meetups, you know, so I would go to a bunch of those and at one of those, I think it was the open stack meetup actually on the VMware campus, you know, you learn a bunch of things about, you know, those specific technologies 
and um, you meet a bunch of interesting people at, at different other organizations and who are involved in that technology. And that's just, you know, again, part of my job is to just be personable and talk to people. So I just kept on striking up conversations with different people, finding out what they were doing. And then I was talking to this guy for about 20 minutes. And then we finally both realized that we both worked for VMware. So <laughs> that wasn't, you know, um, necessarily a great use of time to, uh, get to know each other. Like as far as like, you know, talking to people and then maybe introducing them to what VMware is doing in OpenStack, but it happened to be Eric Nielsen. Right. So, um, he said that he ran a podcast and I was like, Oh wow. I, for whatever reason, I didn't know that, you know, we had any podcasts. I just assumed that they're, you know, all out of Austin. He's like, Nope, Nope. Our social media marketing team is here in Palo Alto. So, you know, he was looking for somebody who in a field technical role to be a co-host to come in and, and talk about, you know, you know, that perspective and, and, and I, I was happy to, to do it. And I think the, the night before I was doing it, um, I went and listened to, you know, he gave me a, a pointer or something to the archives and I was like, oh, this is the VMware Community Roundtable podcast. Like I've been listening to that for five years. I just didn't realize that's the podcast you're talking about, <laughs> you know? So, um, and then I went in and I was like, oh yeah, Eric Nielsen. Yeah. That's the voice that I hear like every week. I, you know, I feel really, really silly not knowing uh, who you were, you know, or what I was signing up for. So I just kind of like accidentally, you know, happened upon it. But, um, you know, that being said, it's, it's funny that like the harder you work and, and you go to extracurricular things, like, you know, the luckier you get. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I can't say that I would 100% have like run into him, you know, if I kept on doing, going to those things, but I definitely would not have if I never went. So, um, you, you always go to things and you always network and, and good things happen, right? Yeah. You never know what opportunities may present themselves and then you have to decide whether or not to pursue it. That's good. I like that. <laughs> and then yeah. you, you know, you recruited somebody to join VMware to become your podcast co-host for this podcast, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> funny. Like, I think, um, I definitely had an idea of doing a podcast like way before joining the community's roundtable. Like that was like kind of a long-term thing. I, I want to say in the first week that I was at VMware or even before I joined, I was like, you know, I'd like to podcast about this experience, you know, at some point. I didn't have the thesis of an idea until you came on and I was like, oh, we should talk about, you know, your journey being an SE at VMware and what that adjustment is like, right? What that experience is like. And then that kind of morphed into this um, career in general, like advice podcast. Like hopefully we can, you know, model our experiences and by that, like actually, you know, show people how we were successful and have one model for success. Yeah. It's been fun so far. Hopefully we've said some smart things that have helped people. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we've been helpful. I feel right? like, I feel like we have <laughs> helped some people. So how about this, John? Do you mind sharing a lesson that you had to learn the hard way during your time at VMware? Sure. Oh yeah. So like, this is an easy answer, right? Um, not everybody is reasonable. Um, I had to learn that the hard way, not everybody. And maybe a better way to put it is like, not everybody sees our company as an important partner in their portfolio of solutions that they're using. So 
like I, I see us playing like a major role no matter what it is you're doing. Not everybody is that way. And then on top of that, not everybody is reasonable. Um, so um, I've had some adversarial interactions or just confrontational or, you know, like not polite, <laughs> you know, all, any of those like uh, things, you know, and it's just sometimes somebody's having a bad day and you overcome it over time. And sometimes that's just somebody's attitude towards everything or towards VMware and everybody working at VMware, it, you know, it, all of those things happen. And, uh, so you just have to understand that and not take it personally. And, um, that was a very, very difficult lesson, right. To go like, Oh, like that's, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there, but it can't affect me and my like life. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it can affect my like interaction with that person. Like I can know, oh, okay, I need to be a little bit on guard. I need to understand like where they're coming from and their, you know, viewpoint of VMware as a solution partner. But like, none of that is about me personally. Right. You can so, only control your reactions to situations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I'm not saying that it doesn't bleed over, but you just have to understand, you know, like, that's just your like stress hormones and chemicals in your body that are reacting to interactions that you're having and it carries over and then those go away if you drink enough water. <laughs> Speaking of stress, John, uh, how about work-life balance? Has that been easy to come by? Are you out of balance, in balance? Do you fluctuate? I know that in previous episodes I talked about how I was kind of out of balance at the beginning and I still have periods where it goes off balance. What do you think? Yeah. The amount of time that we have to spend working waxes and wanes, right? Um, so there's sprints and then there's slow periods and you have to be productive in your slow periods and you have to manage the amount of time that you're investing in those sprints. Um, so like in some ways it's been like incredibly freeing, you know, we work from home. Um, and in, I would say like the more, the most difficult thing that I've had to do is manage how much I'm working and not like starting early enough or, or, or working through the entire day. My problem has just been working too much, right? There's always training to do. There's always things that I could be working on. There's always notes and thoughts that I have about customers that, you know, and next steps and additional transcription of a, you know, my handwritten meeting notes that I could be doing. Like there's an infinite amount of work that I could be doing. And my problem, it's been, you know, less, less of a problem recently, but you know, my problem has been like, Oh, all of a sudden it's seven 30 and I haven't stopped working and my wife's already eaten dinner. It's 9.30. It's 10.30. It's 11.30. My wife is asleep. It's 3.30. I should have gone to sleep five hours ago. Um, and so that's something to really manage and watch out for. And, you know, I've just gotten better at that, right? Um, I set alarms for myself. You know, 11 o'clock alarm. Why are you still awake? <laughs> um, you know, that, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Um I don't know if that tracks with, with you. Um, I think that's what I described to you as going into the, into the role. Yeah. I, I definitely have periods where I have difficulty turning it off because you know, when you're out visiting with customers and you come back, there's still email to answer. There are still other customers that want your attention and you want to try and be responsive to them. 
so that they don't think that you're ignoring their request. So you have to find that balance. Sometimes you, you have to choose to, to go to sleep and take care of yourself. Maybe you send a quick email that says, I'm going to get back to you tomorrow, but I don't, I can't do it right now. At least to let them know that their message didn't go into a black hole. So I think I go in spurts and sprints. The exercise is definitely helping what I've been doing since the beginning of the year. And my resolution is still pretty much on track there. Uh, It's definitely forcing me to sleep more because I'm pretty worn out. (laughs) Worked out this hard for this long ever. And I want to keep going. So I, I definitely get it, man. What about, okay, last one, John. I know we've gone a little long this time, but I think it's been good discussion and definitely applicable to anybody in any job. Mm. Last one, what would make you leave the company tomorrow? Ooh. Is there anything? Hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, right, so probably comes in a few categories. One would be, if I had an ethical mismatch with what the company was doing. So I felt like there's like a huge ethical, you know, gap and I just couldn't live with that. Right. So, um, yeah, so I think that would be one, right. Um, I would say the second would be cultural. Um, like if there's a big cultural gap between what I expected and wanted out of the company and, and what was, was actually happening, you know, like, uh, I, I don't know, like if there's like a major like bro culture or, um, you know, like discriminatory culture that I noticed like happening and there's, you know, I voiced my concern and they said, Hey, that's not important. Well, that's probably not something I can really associate myself with, like, you know, long-term, medium-term, probably even short-term, um, you know, so maybe like another cultural issue might be like, you know, recognition and and feeling valued. Like that's, that's pretty important. Um, so if I felt like I was being not valued, like, and, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe compensation would be one, you know, gross way of measuring that, but, you know, just attaboys and, uh, you know, um, recognition is, you know, a good team member, right and support of the team like that that would be maybe another gap family issues of course like you know there's always you know family things that can happen that can make you just drop everything and say hey i gotta take care of this i I can't stay and it's going to be long term it's a long-term problem i I suppose there there could be non-problem things with the family too right like hey we won the lottery we're now worth a hundred million dollars it's tough to work like 60 hours a week, you know, when you're worth a hundred million dollars or whatever. Right. So I don't play the lottery, so that's probably not going to be an issue, but I just wanted to point out sometimes there's like positive uh, family issues there too. Uh, you know, career issues. Maybe I already said that. Um, um, you know, just, uh, I felt like undervalued or, um, at a dead end, you know, no way out. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I this, these are all like, things that we've talked about for other people. So I think that the, you know, career dead end, that that's not a tomorrow thing, right? That builds up over time. 
So maybe maybe we rule that out. But you know, it would be something that I would watch out for if I go, oh, you know, I don't have a career path forward. Like I can't, you know, I can't imagine doing what exactly what it is I'm doing for two more years, or maybe they're not even gonna have this role in three years, you know, if I ever felt like one of those things, then I, you know, that would that would make me reassess what was going on. Like fortunately for me, none of those things that I mentioned is actually an issue at VMware on my team with my manager and my director, you know, so I'm very happy to say that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Good good advice for anyone looking to evaluate good reasons to leave the company. And of course, we talked about reasons to turn down an offer. So not super different from that. Uh, I like it. Thanks, John, for letting me pick your brain here. I appreciate that. Yeah, cool. Well, that's the only segment that we had really, right? (laughs) Um, uh, But anything else pop in your mind uh, before we uh, break? I don't think so. I just want everyone to know that this has been Inside the Mind of John White Part 2. And if you're out there and you want to know more about John and you want to get more nuggets of wisdom from that great mind, just send that tweet out to at Nerd Journey to sign up for the John White School of Mentoring pricing and packaging to come. We, of course, want you to subscribe (laughs) and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. All right. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at We Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios. Joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at Network Nerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? (laughs) It's going great. (laughs) Okay, you win. You win. (laughs) I need a minute. I need a minute. That that wasn't on purpose, man. That was just me. I'm cool. I'm cool.